Good morning. How are you all? Um, well, as Pastor Lorenzo said, my name is Ryan Smith. I serve as the teaching pastor here at Collective. And I have been a resident of Los Angeles since uh, 2019, which for some of you is no time at all. For others of you, you're like, how have you survived that long in this city? And, and as a resident of Los Angeles, and even more as a pastor of Los Angeles, one of these motivating desires for me is, man, I, I need to be more than just a good pastor or even you know, a Bible nerd and a good preacher. I, I need to understand the city that I live in, the city that we're ministering to. And so specifically building up for this series in Ecclesiastes, and you'll hear a little bit more about why in a moment, um, I have dove headlong into reading uh, histories and, and excerpts of history books about the city of Los Angeles. And man, it has been a fascinating journey. Uh, one of these uh, books that I was able to, to look into was um, the journalist Mauro Mayo, how's that for a name? Um, like mayonnaise, uh, wrote in 1933 uh, a history of the city of Los Angeles up to that point. And in it, uh, he wrote a, a profound sentence that, man, once this seed gets in your head, you won't be able to shake it. You'll see it behind me. Morrow Mayo wrote, Los Angeles, it should be understood, is not a mere city. On the contrary, it is and has been since 1888 a commodity, something to be advertised and sold to, the people, to people like automobiles, cigarettes, and mouthwash. We live in more than just an autonomous, uh, a neutral setting, a neutral place, the city of Los Angeles. Uh, we are not autonomous little individuals making out who we want to be. We live in a contested space where we are being advertised and marketed, a particular way of life, a Los Angeles way of life. But this, this commodification, this marketing doesn't simply happen through billboards and postered or sponsored content in your feed, but each day as we are not just sold, but being shaped by what sociologists call soft power. That is the ambient dissemination of an L.A. state of mind, we could call it. Uh, the ideas, the desires, the mental maps that go on within your head, a pattern for life that Los Angeles, day by day, you wake up and you walk out your front door, are being shaped by. And it's really difficult for us to see and even talk about that pattern, that way of life, that state of mind, because over time, they become how we see and talk. They become the shaping lens for how we view reality and the language that we use to talk about our lives. And so it becomes quite difficult to see and talk about them. The, uh, well, uh, uh, Gardenia-based, but um, uh, the author, uh, prolific author, David Foster Wallace, in a commencement speech for Kenyon College, he captured this well. He opens this commencement speech by telling the story of two young fish swimming through the ocean one day. And as they go about their day, they happen to come across an older fish who's swimming in the opposite direction. As they pass, the older fish looks over at the two younger and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The fish keeps swimming for a little longer while, and then one of them turns over to the other and says, what the heck is water? The point of the story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, life-shaping realities, what we swim in, what we breathe, are often the hardest to see and the hardest to talk about because they are our assumption. They are the thing that we swim in. And because we are immersed in swimming in them, it's very easy for those of us who live our lives in this city to ask, what the heck is L.A.? What is this thing? 
You see, to discover a life worth living in the waters of Los Angeles, we need an older fish moment. Someone who calls an attention to what it actually is that you and I are swimming in every single day to point out what's going on there. We need our eyes open to, be, to see uh, what we're being sold and how we're being shaped by the city of Los Angeles. Two of my favorite history books, often uh, bestsellings as well. What do they call the city of Los Angeles? The Mirage Factory and the Land of Smoke and Mirrors. You see, the danger is us living our lives, swimming in the waters of the Mirage Factory, living our lives in the land of smoke and mirrors and not realizing what's happening all along. The danger is that you and I become like the residents of Owens Lake. You'll see a picture of it uh, from about 100 years ago behind me. You see, the citizens of Owens Lake were, were new settlers who had just come out west and began to build up farms and ranches and, and developing this whole area, building their lives in a future all around Owens Lake. And then, about 100 years ago, city officials came up and began to buy up the land with Los Angeles tax dollars as they pretended and posed themselves as being potential farmers, potential ranchers. They bought up the territory around Owens Lake and all the way down towards Los Angeles. And then, over the course of a decade or so, they built an aqueduct and they streamlined all of the water, turning Owens Lake into a desiccated Owens Valley, which now is incapable of farming. And it has led to uh, not just the single largest um, uh, creation of air pollution in our country, but completely destituted families that had come out there and built the whole thing. The city, a mirage factory. It's the land of smoke and mirrors. And we need to be really attentive to not selling our future under the guise of what the city has to offer. You see, to discover a life worth living, we need to ask, what the heck is Los Angeles? We need to ask, what is this city selling to us? And how is it shaping us? If you'll turn or tap in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, this morning we're opening up a new series, which over the next nine weeks will be our older fish moment, where we will have someone call attention to the city that we live in, the city of Los Angeles. This land of smoke and mirrors is where we get the name of our series. And we're calling this series will be in until uh, Easter, uh, Smoke and Mirrors, uh, Deconstructing Los Angeles with the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're able, would you join me in standing as we read from God's word this morning? Each week we stand as we read from the scriptures, and this is a way of identifying with our bodies, like kneeling when you pray or raising your hands in worship, that this is a particularly special time of our week as we, as the collective gathered people of Jesus, sit underneath his word. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let's read this together. It says, The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man, what does a person gain by all of their toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens back to the place where it rises from. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Yes, 
all things are full of weariness. A person cannot utter it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this, this is new. It's already been in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray together. And so, Father, today we move uh, (laughs) with a little bit of trepidation after reading from the book. Uh, God, into the words of Ecclesiastes. And we pray that over this series, we would have the hard, older fish moment where someone calls attention to what it is we're swimming in so that we might find something greater on the other side. We pray that you'd meet us as we look at the scriptures today. Would you speak through your word? God, would you shape us in a new way? In your name we pray, amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Well, here we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and in the opening verse, we are introduced to our older fish. Verse one tells us this book is the words of the preacher or the preacher. In Hebrew, the the book, what it was originally written in, the, the title is Kohelet, or in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the preacher is the word Ecclesiastes. It's where we get the name of the book. So what does Ecclesiastes mean? It's the name of who's writing the book. And we get a couple details here about the preacher that are given to us, that he is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And this has led to all kinds of of conversations and debates throughout history. Is this Solomon the son of David? Is this another son of David in his line? Is this some kind of literary tool where some author is kind of wearing Solomon's clothes, as it were, to speak from his perspective, uh, regardless of who is the author? What we find in the coming chapters of the book is the preacher is someone who has seen, heard, tasted, tried, experienced, tested it all. Living in Los Angeles and being relatively new to the city, I am really, really grateful for natives. Those of you who have spent your whole life here in the city of Los Angeles, you get it at a level that many of us that are transplants do not. And I'm really, really grateful for my neighbors who are like elderly natives. Like they have been here not just for their whole lives, but their whole lives they've been here. And they've seen it all, right? To talk to them about, you know, in the midst of, the, of um, protests and riots last year, and then you start talking about Rodney King riot. Like they're like, oh, we've seen all of this before. They have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of the city. But the problem is, is that in being with someone who's seen the good, bad, and the ugly of the city, it's not a very exciting view of Los Angeles, is it? It's actually a really hard perspective that for those of us that move here expecting L.A. to be la-la land, like they shut that down very quickly, don't they? And, and the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is a native, not to Los Angeles, but to life under the sun, as he calls it. He spent his whole life here. He has tried, tested, he'd seen it all and, and it's not anything, it's no la-la land. See, the book of Ecclesiastes is no Mr. Rogers. That's more of like the book of Proverbs. The book of Ecclesiastes is more like Tommy Lee Jones' uh, character from No Country for Old Men, one of my personal favorites. This has led some to refer to the preacher as the critic or the cynic. One of my uh, favorite authors, he refers to, to the preacher as the original postmodern philosopher. And this is why, over the course of our series, uh, you're going to hear me refer to the preacher, not as the preacher, not as the teacher, not as Kohelet, but as the deconstructor. 
Because I believe this encapsulates, gives us the purpose of what this book is all about. It is about deconstruction. And the preacher stands with us to deconstruct our ideas and visions, the pattern that we've been given by this world, by this city. And so in using the deconstructor, that's not because I don't agree that the preacher is a really good translation, but for us to hear it in a little bit of a different way, to engage and lean in a little bit more, and even to keep before us exactly what this book is all about. He is here to deconstruct. Now, the key observation, though, is Tommy Lee Jones, our deconstructor, is not alone in the book. Verse 1 shows us that someone is actually introducing us to the deconstructor, someone that we could call the author. If you look at verse 1, you'll see that the preacher doesn't introduce themselves. I, you know, son of, of uh, David, king. He doesn't say that. Someone else is almost, as it were, standing here and going, I- I'd like to introduce you to the deconstructor, to the preacher, to Kohelet. There's an author here who's introducing us. And what's interesting is the author comes and in verse 1 introduces us to the deconstructor. In verse 2 summarizes all that the book is going to say and then steps aside. You know, it goes back in the house and then doesn't come back until chapter 12. Where then at the end of the conversation goes, now that was a lot, (laughs) I know. Here's, Here's the big idea. Here's the big theme of why I've introduced you to the deconstructor. Why I wanted you to sit with them. And what they say in verse 12 is the words, or excuse me, in chapter 12, the end of the book, the author says, the words of the wise, the words of the deconstructor are like goads. How many of you know what a goad is? Not goat, <laughs> goad. A goad is a, is, is a sharp, pointy end on a stick. And it was used by shepherds when you had sleepy sheep that needed to get moving or stubborn sheep that wouldn't move. You would come along behind them and you poke and prod them with this little goad. And it didn't feel great for the sheep, but it got them going where they needed to. The author says the deconstructor's words are like a sharp, pointy stick that those of us who are sleepy or stubborn or distracted, it doesn't feel great, but it gets us going in the right direction. It painfully moves us in the direction of something greater. We're getting ahead of ourselves. What are the deconstructor's words that poke and prod? Right? What are these sharp, pointy stick words? Verse 2 summarizes it for us. As the reconstructor, as we'll call the author, or summarizes all that the book will go on to say. And what is it in verse 2? Vanity of vanities, says the deconstructor. All is vanities. All is smoke. All is vanity. That smoke there is exactly what we're getting at. See, the word vanity, most of us don't use it in English very regularly. And so some translations would go to say that this could be translated as, maybe some of you are reading it. Right now it doesn't say vanity, but it says all is, is meaningless, right? And, and, and that's a little, I see what they're doing there, but let's, let's get back into the Hebrew for a moment and, and what the word is because it's used 38 times in this 12-chapter book. It is a central word to take a moment on. See, the word that's used here that we translate as vanities in the translation we use is this Hebrew word hevel, and, and most literally, the word is used to talk about smoke or mist. So you think about something that's a smoke. It's, it's illusory. It's, it's vaporous. It's you reach for it, and you can't get your hand around it. It is short-lived. It is fleeting. That which is fleddle, uh, or hevel, is, is one translation says it's mere breath. It's elusive. It's mirage-like. It's vain. And so like we're doing with the deconstructor, over the course of this series, you'll hear me refer to vanity or hevel with the language of smoke and mirrors. 
not only because that's, you know, what one of these history books called Los Angeles, and so there's a connection there to be sure, but we use smoke and mirrors a little bit more than the word vanity, and we use it to talk about things that seem to lack substance, things that are um, an illusion, something that misdirects your attention, something that distorts and clouds your perception, smoke and mirrors, hevel, vanity. And this is what the preacher, the deconstructor says everything is. So what does the deconstructor mean by everything? Everything is smoke and mirrors. Everything is fleeting and distracting, is an illusion, it clouds are... What does he mean by all? If you'll jump down in verse three, you'll see at the end of it there, the setting for the whole book. This is another word that's gonna, a phrase that's gonna be repeated 29 times over this, another major theme to this book, like Hevel, is this phrase, under the sun. And so under the sun is more than just talking about like down here. Under the sun is a way of talking about reality as bounded by what we can see, hear, taste, feel, and test. This is encapsulated very well in Carl Sagan. Uh, back in his uh, television series, Cosmos, he opened with this opening shot of the incredible you know, constellations of the sky. And you hear in almost you know, biblical proportions, Carl Sagan's voice say, the cosmos is all that is and ever was or ever will be. This is under the sun. This is um, summarizing of, of what we would more modern refer to as secularism. Hearing the word secularism, you and I tend to take that as just meaning non-religious, but literally what the word means is it's, it's now-ism. It's, it's to this age, to this time, what we in our little perception in space can see, taste, touch, hear, feel, and test. And this is exactly what under the sun is. This is the setting of the book, is the world from a perception that limits it to exact this time, to right here, right now, what we can experience, to, sec to secularism. Which in many ways is so interesting because that is the primary mental map and pattern, the framework that Los Angeles seems to operate on. And so here you have this ancient document, this ancient book of poetry, and right from the gate, we have being deconstructed in front of us, or at least a hint that it's going to be. Los Angeles, in essence, is being not just deconstructed, but shown as being smoke and mirrors, or the land of smoke and mirrors is nothing but smoke and mirrors. Now, this is a bold claim to be sure. I understand that. And the deconstructor is going to tease this out for us in every area of life over the coming nine weeks. So right now in your mind, you're like, well, that can't be smoke and mirrors. Just wait. He's going to get to that too. But what is the first area? What's the first thing that he limits as, or, or acknowledges as being smoke and mirrors? He gives us a poem. A poem that opens in verse 3 with an opening question. And the question is the big question. What does a person get from all of their toil at which they labor and work under the sun? This is the, this is the big existential question that gets you out of bed in the morning. What are you working for and toward? What is your life all about? What is it building up to? What is the goal of your life? When you get to your deathbed, what will you have to show under the sun? The deconstructor gives three answers in the following verses, four through 11. This poem that kind of has a sandwich style, what can be referred to as a chiastic structure, where what you'll find is the preacher is gonna have in verse four um, a particular uh, thing about what do we gain under the, so the sun, and that's gonna be mirrored in what he says in the final verse, verse 11, and then you'll find it moves in, and then at the very center is the big pff, gut punch that he gives us. 
So in verse 4 and then again in 11, you'll, you'll see it behind me. You see, uh, first he opens with saying what? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What do you gain with all your work under the sun? Nothing lasting. A generation comes and a generation goes. You're going to die. Happy Sunday. Welcome to church. And then at the end of, of verse 11, and in verse 11, at the end of the poem, he then re-hits on what he said in the beginning, but now from a little bit of a different angle. He says, there is no remembrance of former things, or as it can be translated, former people. You can see a footnote in most of your Bibles that'll show you that. There's no remembrance of former people, nor will there be any remembrance of later people yet to be among those who come after. What's the poem saying? Verse four, you're going to die. Verse 11, you're gonna be forgotten. You are short-lived and short-remembered. And if you don't believe me, who was your great-great-grandfather? Or maybe let's go one more back. Great-great-great-grandfather. That's still not that far. Let's just begin with what was his name? (laughs) Maybe you've done Ancestry.com, and so you're like, I know. It was, you know, Bodad something. Like, you've got, you know. What was his personality like? What what did he value? What kind of car did he, if he had a car? what, What did he do for a living? What made him laugh until his belly hurt? Was he the kind of man to laugh? That wasn't that long ago. And you wouldn't be here without him. And you have no idea who he is. (laughs) See, what do you get for all of your work? What do you have to show for it? Nothing lasting. And see, here's the thing, though, where the land of smoke and mirrors comes and it sells and shapes us. With a particular vision, the potential, the possibility of being lasting through that smoke and mirrors offering of fame. You can be lasting. Your name can be enduring. Maybe you, you, maybe you still will die, but we'll get to that in a couple weeks, right? You're like, well, you know, I show up at, I shop at Irwan. Like, I, you know, I live inside of Whole Foods. Like, I live, right? We'll get to that later because no matter how good you take care of your body, you're still going to die. That, that's coming up. But the bigger thing right here is let's focus on the fame portion and the lasting name. Let's focus on the lasting name. Because we have a city that offers on all of us on a regular basis, you can make a name for yourself. You can have lasting influence and, and, and um, a name for yourself. You can be remembered. You can be honored. You can be worshiped. This is what many people in this city spend their whole lives chasing after. And the sad reality is that we become what L.A. is selling in that process. L.A. needs famous people to put up and chew up and spit out. And so those of us chasing after fame, we become the bodies underneath the bus that is Los Angeles. If you don't believe me, this week, maybe with your discipleship group, go, go walk the Hollywood Walk of Fame up and down. And just look at all the names and see how many of those names you actually know who they are. Or even more than that, like what their person, who they were actually like beyond just some, some movie they did. And pay attention to the fact that what is happening with all of these famous people's names, that they spent their whole life to get on that sidewalk, they're being walked all over. They're being peed on. Dogs are pooping on them. Fame. You see, the true walk of fame is the trajectory that we begin with getting ourselves and working ourselves into the space of being a hero. 
And then we die and we become a legend. And then we become a forgotten myth. And at best, with all of your chasing and you reaching the highest levels of fame, at best, you will one day be a difficult question on trivial pursuit. <laughs> the preacher says, here under the sun, there's nothing lasting, not even a name. He continues as he moves in the sandwich to verses 5 and 6 and 9 and 10 to say that not only is nothing lasting, there's nothing significant under the sun. You'll see, he says in verse 5 and 6, he, he talks about the, the cosmic circulations of the world, right? The sun rises, and then it goes down, and then it, it hastens. I love it. Pants is the word, like me when I'm running. It pants to the place back where it rises. See, do you see the, cyclic, the cyclical, cyclical nature of the sun is what's being detailed in verse 5? And then verse 6, it says the same thing with the wind. The wind goes down to the south, around back to the north, around, around it goes, and on the circuits, and the winds return. The whole world is just caught up in doing it same old, same old. Verse 9, humans, what has been is what will be, and what's been done is before is what's going to be done again. Why? There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it said, oh, look at this, this is new. Peter goes, no, it's already been in the ages before us, or, or can be translated um, in, already in, the age, in connection to the ages before us. The whole idea being that, that it's just the same repeated story going out, spinning out over and over again. All of human toil is likened to the continuing cycles of the cosmos, just the same old rhythms. All of your striving, all of your toil is like little ants running back and forth from the anthill, inconsequential in the cosmic story. See, life from the preacher's perspective is not one thing after the another, but one thing over and over. And you see, once again, we have this shaping and selling pattern of Los Angeles that sets before us what we could call the cacophony of new. In a world where there is nothing truly new and significant, we just get sold everything as if everything is new and improved and better than before. And this is the, have you seen this new iPhone? It scans your nose. That's how you get in. You don't even need, well, I guess the mask. Like, actually, there's a new beta out that it's gonna scan if you've got a mask on. And you can just say amen. So maybe there is something new. No, just less face. You see, we live within a city that shapes us and sells us under a cacophony of new, where every single day we wake up and there is something new being offered before us as if it's significant, as it's great, as if this is the thing that's going to change your life. As Deliah Ephron put it, in Los Angeles, by the time you're 35, you're older than most of the buildings. A cacophony of new. Smashing down what was before and building up what is new. Or I love as Billy Conley, he was an actor and comedian, put it. He says, I love Los Angeles. It reinvents itself every two days. See, the deconstructor would agree with, with uh, Connolly that there's this ongoing change that's happening within the world. But no, 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 no. Th let's not kid ourselves. This is simply remixes and pretending we're making something new. We're, we're making little adjustments to the same thing that humanity's been doing for all of time and going, look at how new this is. And the preacher goes, let's step back for a minute. This is not that impressive. You can go through and, I mean, do this with technology. You, we get all excited about the latest new tech stuff. And some of you that are writing in this uh, area, you're doing coding or you're, you're developing new devices. It's all you're doing is we're just getting louder and faster at the thing that humans have always been doing, which is communicating. It's the same thing. It's just louder and faster. 
which doesn't lead to normally the best communication. Similarly, I mean, it's, it's a joke at this point now, but this has always been the case. Every single movie, is, it's just, we're just watching the same movie with new characters and new... It's, it's exactly the same thing. How many superhero movies am I going to be sold where it's the same character arc and the same thing with somebody else? And we all pretend like, oh, but this is new. We do this with music. We do this within our work. We do this within our relationships. We do this within ourselves. As we enter into this story of recreating and crafting an, an idea of ourselves that we are something significant in a city of all of these people, that I am someone significant. And the, the preacher would say, in reality, you're a snowflake in this sense. Yes, you're different if we look really, really closely. But when you zoom out, you're the same as everyone else. And you're quickly melting. See, there's nothing significant even though we have a city that shouts and screams new. The preacher isn't done. In the middle of the poem, we get to the final gut punch in verses seven through eight, where we find that nothing is satisfying. Once again, likening the human experience to the the flows of creation, verse seven says, the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. I tried to think about making a connection to a river going into the sea, but it's like Bologna Creek and like, It's not even water. It's like the garbage flows into the sea, but the sea's not full. But he likens a normal natural rhythm of a river to just the idea of like, it's kind of crazy that like a river just goes into the sea forever and the sea just is like, it doesn't overflow, you know, like a cup or my bathtub. It just keeps, that's weird. The sea's never full. And he goes, that's just like humans. (laughs) Verse eight, everything is is full of weariness. We don't want to talk about it. How unsatisfied we are. Why? Our eye is never satisfied with seeing. Our ear isn't filled with hearing. Our passports can be full, but our human heart is never full with experiences. And this is the center of the poem, the hardest thing for you and I to grasp. We can be heartbroken at a short life. We can be bored with an insignificant life. But a life where nothing is satisfying, What's the word that he used? It is full of weariness. It exhausts us to the point of depressive. We can't even talk about it. And once again, if this is reality, we have a selling and shaping vision. What we could call a satisfaction treadmill that is this city. You hop on the treadmill, get in the carrot of satisfaction on that stick, and you run, you chase, you find the job or the career, and if you get to that one office, the corner, we don't really do corner offices anymore, it's all at home, so the Zoom office, I don't know, you get to that position, you get to that role, you get to that stage of life, that relationship. You get to that experience, that trip, that product, that car, that, then you're finally going to be satisfied. And as Don Draper put it, happiness is the moment before you need more happiness. We are constantly longing for satisfaction, unable to find it. He's not an Angelino, but Super Bowl Sunday. Tom Brady said a couple years ago in an interview. <laughs> Well, we'll read his quote. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Cheating. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? 
He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I reached my goal, my dream, my life. It's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me now? And by all counts, him having his what now, seven at retirement, like where he's at, doesn't seem much has changed. You see, at the heart of what makes this city tick is the treadmill of satisfaction that will cause us to run after what is new or what is lasting in hope to have our hearts satisfied. This is what fuels your workaholism. This is what fuels our addictions and alcoholism. This is what fuels the whole product of what we now label as the most explicit form of it is what happens to these Disney child stars where this chase for satisfaction chews up and spits humans out. And all of us are in its maw. All of us are undergoing that chewing cycle of where we allow ourselves to be broken down in search for satisfaction. It may not be fame, but it may be a relationship. It may not be a career, but it may be the honor of those around you. And you will give yourself until you are tired and empty trying to find it. And the preacher says, this is smoke and mirrors. This is the reality, the deconstructor names that all of us glimpse, that we fear, and so often, maybe not often enough, we hit up against the hard crash of reality. And the smoke and mirrors show itself for what it is, but like a fish with memory loss. We shake it off and we sing to ourselves, just keep swimming. And we keep going, we get back on the treadmill. There's gotta be a better way. You see, discover a life worth living in the land of smoke and mirrors where nothing is lasting, significant, or satisfying. You and I need a radical transformation of our expectations. Most of your exhaustion, your frustration, your anger, your fear, your depression, your anxiety is rooted in the fact that you are looking for something under the sun that this world cannot offer and it cannot provide. It can offer it, but it cannot provide it. I know this is for myself, looking over my life, heck, looking over this past week, where most of my moments of of anxiety are around my tight, clenched fists around keeping things from changing. I don't just do this with relationships. I do this with something as simple as, as my, me opening up my iPad this week and finding a crack. It's right here in front of me right now. Reminder that, that nothing is lasting. And as much as I take care of it, as much, I, I have no idea when it happened. This wasn't me just like, you know, throwing my iPad around, like the kids playing. It literally, I just opened it up and there it was. Now this extends all the way to, the, to issues of death and loss in our lives when it comes to nothing is lasting and as something as simple and silly to the anxiety and frustration we get at crack screens. Or my frustration at a city that keeps screaming about everything needing to be new and my whole life continues to feel like the same old, same old. And so I have this, this pent-up anxiety and frustration and anger about this, this need to be significant and at least new and something of value and, and worth in a city that's screaming it at me and I, and I turn in on my life as being something to be frustrated with. 
I do this with the lack of satisfaction. All of my moments of, of disappointment, this happened this week. We were able to, to get away and do like a, an early Valentine's Day dinner. Uh, and we dropped our kids off and we went out to dinner and we, you know, you do all the review searches, like we're total foodies. And so we go through, you know, like, okay, here we go. I'm going to Santa Monica. I'm not going to say the name of the restaurant. Um, incredible reviews. And we're like, all right, here we go. Right? We're saved up. We're going to go out. We eat. And like literally right as the meal ends, we're just like, we could have made this at home. <laughs> like, like, okay. What, and, what, and what was happening in that moment? What was happening in that moment other than I had built up all my expectations around some level of satisfaction? And then once I get it, you see, we, we do this with meals out. We do this with, with trips and vacations. There are some of you that the flight home after a vacation is the worst part of the vacation. Not just because it's, it's over, but you're like, this didn't give me nearly what the, the rest and the joy that I thought it would. We do this with food. We do this with sex. We do this with entertainment. We do this with our relationships where we hold one another to this expectation that they're going to satisfy some deep longing in my heart, and they can't do it. And so we hate them for it. See, we need an expectation transformation. And how do we do that? Well, for the practice for this series is, is through the practice of deconstruction. See, deconstruction is the practice for our series as we join the deconstructor in looking out at our lives and the ideas bumping around in our heads and we take them apart and we begin to ask and analyze the, the foundation of where did this come from, the truthfulness of like, is this legitimate? And it's usefulness. Does this actually lead to a life worth living? We deconstruct and take these things apart. Now, when I say deconstruction, there's, there's a little bit of, you know, potential confusion here I want to clear up. There are, there's kind of two different types of confusion, deconstruction we can say. On one side is, is that faith deconstruction, which is that practice of taking apart the Christian faith and analyzing beliefs or systems or, or doctrines and kind of asking those questions. And is this, what's the foundation of this? Is this useful? Is this historic? Is this faithful, right? That, that is warranted, absolutely necessary and natural part of the Christian faith. And so we're gonna be doing some of that in the fall when we deconstruct our, the doctrine of scripture that a lot of us have bumping around about what we think about what the Bible is and how it's supposed to work. So we're going to do that, but there's a more necessary first deconstruction that many of us skip, and we go straight to faith deconstruction, and that is cultural deconstruction, where we get underneath, what are those motivating assumptions that are bumping around in here? Because if we don't deal with those before we move on to the faith stuff, then we're just going to turn our faith stuff into the, the assumptions and the ideas that we have. This is what I've referred to as Build-A-Bear Jesus before. So we have to start with, with cultural deconstruction. Cultural deconstruction, which I would argue has its groundings in, the, in one of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this city, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Looking at this verse, you could break down a practice of cultural deconstruction into three parts. You'll see this behind me. The first is in identifying that conforming pattern of the city. The second, then, is renewal of your mind. And the third, then, is transformation of your life, which comes by a transformation of your expectations, which we could call reconstruction. This is the process. Identifying the pattern. That's, what's that conforming pattern that's either going on, I'm seeing it out there, or I'm feeling it in here. 
naming that, renewing my mind about that, thinking that through, is this legitimate? Deconstructing it like the book does. And then emerging on the other side and saying, what is the wisdom that I'm being poked and prodded into now? So to kind of tease this out a little bit is that first idea of identifying that pattern is as you go through your life, this is really fun. Do this today at the Super Bowl. Watch all the commercials and pay attention. Don't ask what's the product that's being sold. What's the pattern that's, being, that's shaping me right now? What's being offered here beyond just like, you know, Coke Zero, right? What is it? And most of the time, it revolves around something lasting or your name being lasting or your life being lasting, starving off, staving off death, significance, something new, or you being satisfied. You just look for those three, and that's, that's, that's a, you know, Spark Notes version of what all the commercials you're going to see today is. More frustrating, though, is as you go through this week, I want you to look for moments of disappointment, frustration, and anger or anxiety, and just step back, because this is most, but not all. Step back and just ask yourself, is it possible that these emotions are rooted in me chasing or desiring or expecting something lasting or significant or satisfying from whatever it is that I feel frustrated at? This is the process of identifying. And then we move into the process of then renewing. Can Coke Zero actually offer satisfaction? Can anything? No, Coke Zero is awful. (laughs) Can anything offer that satisfaction for me? Anything that I'm being sold? Okay, so that then allows me to then deconstruct the commercial to, to try to avoid or at least be aware of how it's trying to shape me. And then I can, you know, deal with the product as, as I want. But even more than that, to do the same thing with those emotions. If I am um, angry or frustrated about the lack of something being lasting or significant or satisfying, to step back and go, is that fair for me to expect that from that person or that thing? Is that actually a genuine thing I should expect from them? The preacher would say, probably not. And then you come through on the other side of a transformation of expectations about all of those things, whether that's your relationships, your life, your health, your, you know, your date night for Valentine's Day, whatever, the Super Bowl results, whatever it might be, that you now are able to move with transformed expectations about each of those things. So instead of expecting that everything's going to be lasting, I can now receive all that comes and goes with just a, a posture of gratitude for what I had when I had it. And that as, instead of thinking through that I'm going to be or what I'm going to receive is going to be something significant and new, I can just have a posture of humility. This is great. It's, you know, you're great. I'm great. This is all great. But it's, it's not significant. And then finally, with the fact that nothing is going to be satisfying, that, that we can just kind of enjoy the things as we have them, receiving them, not looking for satisfaction, but just to be content with, with the varying levels of non-satisfaction that we might receive from them. I think in, in talking through this, we're summarizing really well what the deconstructor is going to say in chapter 9, where he says, as a result of everything under the sun being smoke and mirrors, hey, delight in the food that you have, the wine that you're drinking, the clothes that you're wearing, the life that you have, the, the spouse that you have, he says, the work that you have. Enjoy and delight in those things because you're not going to have them in the grave. And then he ends with, which you're going to, by the way. <laughs> Enjoy it while you have it. You're not going to have it forever. Transfer, you, need to, you, need to, you need to deeply do an audit on your expectations about these things. Now, this leads to, I mean, just imagine if you're able to live with this kind of open-handed 
contentment with your life. It's a very Zen way of life. One that I, I mean, do not come to me for pointers on how to do this. Like I am working through this for myself, but this I believe is the deconstructor's wisdom. In a land of smoke and mirrors, we need to transform our expectations if we're gonna find a life worth living. Now here's the thing. Up to this point, everything that I've said, my secular humanist friends would agree wholeheartedly with. Life isn't forever. Enjoy it while you have it. And yes, that is a better way to live than than being caught up in the smoke and mirrors, to be sure. But my secular humanist friends, my question is always with them. This unresolved question. Yes, nothing is lasting, nothing is significant, and nothing is satisfying. But why are we so hell-bent on finding something that is? Where does that longing come from? From an evolutionary perspective, it, it, makes, it makes quite literally no sense for us as humans to have this ticking around desire for something that doesn't exist. Do you realize that the, I like bananas because they exist? I drink coffee because, how do, how do I desire something that doesn't exist? And so the question is, where does that deep-seated longing for something lasting, significant, and satisfying come from, which we ch- spend our whole lives chasing after? What did the end of the book say? The deconstructor's words are like goads. They poke and prod us not just toward a transformation of our expectations, but to a greater invitation. As the preacher, the deconstructor, will say in chapter three, that God has put eternity into every human heart. Our longing for eternity, for something lasting, for something significant, and something satisfying has its origin in God. And it has been placed there as the roadmap home. And the problem is, is that so often we, 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 we misuse and we chase out, we look for that longing in just about anything and everything but God. As the North African theologian put it in the early church, Augustine, he said, you have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The city of Los Angeles is the story of a city that is restlessly looking for what only God can give it. And so lasting significance and satisfying substance cannot be found in all of your toil under the sun. But it can only be found by resting in the sun. I'm sorry. I know it's like bad preacher. Like I was just writing, I I wrote it. I was like, can I say this any other way? But by resting in the sun, what do I mean by this? In a city, in a world where nothing is lasting, Jesus, the son of God, invites you and I with his words, I am the resurrection and the life. True, lasting, eternal, welling up and overflowing life is found and made available through Jesus, specifically being the resurrection through his death where he has entered into all of the smoky mess of our smoke in mirrors to find us and even allow Well, we're going to deal with more in the coming chapters, the death that makes everything smoke and mirrors. Grab and take him so that he might be the resurrection and life for us. In a city where nothing is significant, Jesus calls to us and says, I am making all things new. That by my spirit's power at work in you, true significance, true belonging, and true newness of life can actually be found. 
And in a city where nothing is satisfying, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For those who rest in Jesus, they find true, overwhelming, overflowing satisfaction. And the invitation for all of us today is whether or not we're going to receive and walk in that invitation. And I don't mean that just for my friend, those of you here that don't identify as a Christian, I mean that for each and every single one of us. Because we are not on neutral territory. We are being sold and shaped a particular pattern of life every single day. And the danger is in missing out on the invitation of Jesus as we chase after these broken expectations for this city. Another way of saying it, to discover a life worth living in a land of smoke and mirrors, we need a transformation of our expectations, not just through identifying what the city cannot offer, but by receiving the invitation of what only Jesus can. Let's pray.